Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello, today I'd like to welcome Chris Cole to the podcast. Chris is a graduate of Naropa University from the Contemplative Psychology Department. He also hosts a podcast called Waking Up Bipolar and is the author of a book called The Body of Chris, a memoir of obsession, addiction, and madness. And he also has done a talk called Spark Talks with Naropa and his topic was on bipolar order, getting to the heart of sanity. And I'd just like to welcome him today. It's a great joy to be here with you, David. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for speaking with us. So it seems as though there's a narrative being played here about bipolar order. And I would just love to start this conversation about what is your journey? How did you get started? And maybe we can kind of go from there and then discover the work you're doing now. Yeah, so bipolar order is a kind of proclamation or declaration that there's more to bipolar than just the pathology. Mm -hmm. So people are familiar with bipolar as bipolar disorder, and it used to be called manic depressive disorder or manic depression. And to me, the bipolar order is a necessary bridge for people to be empowered who find themselves meeting the criteria for bipolar disorder, particularly bipolar disorder in remission. Mm -hmm. So bipolar disorder can be classified as a diagnosis as in remission, but you still have it is the idea Mm. because of the chronic nature of it. Yeah. And so for me, I found myself, especially in advocacy circles where I'm trying to activate and inspire people to be empowered and be bold and be Bipolar strong is a recent uh, term that the International Bipolar Foundation was using for World Bipolar Day. I love that. Yeah, and so as I'm encouraging people to do this, I started to notice that people would ask me, well, what do you do for a living? Mm -hmm. Or they'd say, what's your book about? Yeah. And I would say stuff like, oh, it's about my recovery journey. Mm -hmm. Or I would say I'm a recovery coach. Or I would say something like, I have uh, quite a history of mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. But I found myself tiptoeing around actually saying bipolar or I have bipolar disorder or I am mentally ill. These were things that were really challenging for me because Mm -hmm. I didn't fully identify. Yeah, there's a feeling of feeling more empowered by not using the word disorder. You know, you are in order. And there is something else just happening that a lot of people experience. And I resonate with this thing you said, bipolar strong, because by doing that, you're taking the power back. You're not being subjected to a disorder, you know. And so I really appreciate you speaking about that. And there's something more powerful there. The hard part for me is I'm very involved in some kind of like mad movement type of material where 
folks are really standing up and saying that just the very nature of classifying people as sane or insane or psychologically well or psychologically unwell mm-hmm. invites a whole host of complex systems, Yeah, which is to say that what we assume is proper behavior, proper speech, yeah, proper way of relating to the world and relating to each other mm. is to be defined in a way that there's a line between the people that are well and the people that are unwell. Yes. And it does not invite a discourse in diversity, mm. which is to say that how I experience the world is very simply rooted in even the most basic biology that the way we see color is different between people. We have common language around color. Yeah. You know, so, or the way that our bodies are shaped Mm -hmm. or the way that we each have a unique fingerprint and a unique facial pattern. Yeah. There's an idea of healthy mind, not healthy mind. And it sounds like there is a line but what's interesting is it feels so nebulous because like how do you define what is healthy in the mind and what isn't and like maybe some of it is healthy and we're we're misreading it yeah definitely and something that comes up for me around that is wanting to say that in my own story my own history i really struggled And so the recovery piece, that's completely true. It's just not the whole story. Maybe not completely true. It's it's a completely true statement, but it's not the whole story. Yes. And I struggled with addiction as a adolescent. Mm -hmm. I had very challenging relationship with food from a very young age. Someone might consider that disordered eating or Mm -hmm. eating disorders. And then as I got older... I had really intense body dysmorphia where I was like very ashamed of the way my body looked. I didn't feel like I was worthy of sexual intimacy. There was a lot of really intense things going on for me at that time as a teenager. And so I hold space in my heart that there are things that we want to be able to treat and we want to be able to move beyond and we want to be able to help heal in people, heal mm-hmm. in each other, most importantly, heal in ourselves. Yeah. However, it's not for someone to say very clearly, this is what's wrong with you. It's mm-hmm. more like, can we invite the space for someone to come in? Can we welcome them into the level of empowerment that's necessary for recovery in the first place and say, yeah. how are you struggling? What are you needing? And can I be that safe person or can we have this safe space yeah. for you to heal what you need to heal? Not what I'm telling you you need to heal. Yes. It's an invitation to healing and it's not this textbook, everyone fits the same mold sort of style. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that. So... How did you know when it came up for you? And when it came up for you, what is it like to self-admit that Mm -hmm. this is happening? What is that like? What is that process like? Yeah, well, when it comes to bipolar, what I call a bipolar location, because I do consider it to be a kind of space that I choose to step into and incorporate into 
the vernacular that I use for myself and also the relationship as far as identity and taking on a label yeah. that we all have to do. Mm-hmm. And so I choose to take on the bipolar label because, for one, it was given to me without consent. So if everyone's already telling me I'm bipolar, then mm. it's kind of my job to reappropriate that term in a way that makes sense for me so that I can live my life. Because there's something about being diagnosed as bipolar and then having the nat- very natural resistance to a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And then to have to have this kind of, not only a process of grief and acceptance or what I call Uh, mourning and transforming. Nice. Yeah, but to have this relationship to it in my own internal space, but there's also the external space of of arguing with others and and being challenged by others and Mm. being branded and being in some ways, like for me, I was, and this goes into my story, I was confined in a way and treated as a subhuman type of, species in my opinion that's the that's the level of how i was being related to and so when i was 18 years old this is the easiest way for me to tell this a very long story (laughs) all right but when i was 18 years old i was very into substances especially alcohol and i would stay up partying on red bull and vodka and and i also had a, a great deal of the body dysmorphia eating disorder so i would like starve myself. I'd take diet pills, which had Mm. a kind of ephedrine-like substance in it, and drink and and party all night and not get good sleep. And and what happened was a week prior to beginning my fall semester of my freshman year in college at the University of Georgia, Mm -hmm. I couldn't sleep one night. And it was after I heard about someone dying in a boating accident. It was an older fraternity brother of some friends of mine. Yeah. And for whatever reason, seeing people break down at a party and go from celebrating and keg stands and all these types of things to go from that to everyone crying Mm. stirred something very deep in my soul, very deep in my being. Yeah. And it reminded me of a couple friends that I had lost at 16, two years prior. Mm Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I spent the whole night being unable to stop crying. Yeah. It was like I had tapped a deep inner well of sadness that I never allowed to flow mm-hmm. freely. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to drink my sorrows away. It didn't work. Yeah. And then when the sun came up, I felt so agitated in my skin. I started to uh, walk back to my dorm room where I was staying from my friend's house. And over the course of a number of hours, my ego started to just completely disintegrate. My identity started to evaporate in some way. Mm. And I felt this enormous euphoric bliss of not being me. There's a kind of sweet tragedy to it because on one hand, it's a very beautiful unitive experience and a, mm. and a very poignant spiritual emergency and yet on the other hand the deep deep relief that I wasn't who I thought I was was profound and tragic in a way Mm -hmm. because wouldn't it be nice if if all of our 18 year old 
brothers and sisters and mm. and peoples of this world could appreciate who they are and i did not i was unbelievably relieved to not be chris cole interesting and so that's what happened and then what i say is my ego really clung to this really inexplicable unnameable awakening and I was raised very conservative Christian Catholic in the South. Yeah. I thought, well, I'm definitely Jesus, right? Like this is yeah. what this is <laughs> what Jesus feels like. No doubt in my mind. Totally. And so with a great deal of conviction, mm-hmm. I'm like uh frantically manically running through my dorm room telling all my friends they're going to be my disciples. Every person that I talked to, I'd, I'd tell them like a prophecy about how they were going to help save the world yeah. and why they were here on this earth. And then eventually the campus police came and were like, they just, all they did was walk in the door. I remember it very vividly. All they did was walk through the door and I laid down flat face down on the ground and put my hands behind my back. And I just sort wow. of knew they were there for me. Yeah. And they took me to the, their police car and said, well, what are we going to do with him? And they said, let's just take him in. And something about that brief conversation sent me running wild, and I was convinced that they were the Pharisees taking me to my crucifixion by the time I got to the jail. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow, what a wild, dissolving ride that must have been. It was quite a trip. Sounds like the start of quite a thing. So... I have a question for you, and it's how do you define bipolar? How does that show up for you? There's layers to that question for me. So when I think about the bipolar that is the sort of common language, I think of bipolar disorder as just a set of symptoms, a diagnostic criteria, and if you meet the symptoms for any duration of time, a certain... If you meet enough of the symptoms for a certain duration of time, mm-hmm. then you meet the criteria for the diagnosis and you will be diagnosed. You know? Yeah. And so there's that. And then there's also a piece about, for me, and this is where, the, where spirituality really comes into play, is we live in a bipolar universe. You know, mm-hmm. Everything that we experience, and this is largely based on the nervous systems that we inhabit, everything we experience is experienced in contrast. Yeah. And so if something is not in contrast, we actually don't notice it. Mm. It's not in our field of consciousness, at least not conscious thought, I should say, not the totality yeah. of consciousness. Totally. And so without the play of lightness and darkness, without the spectrum mm. of color or the great, you know, you're a musician, I know, and so this <laughs> this great range of musical tone that we have access to. Yeah. And as you surely know, that there's music tones that are outside of what we can hear. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that consciousness is like that. There are degrees of consciousness that are outside of our perception mm. and our abilities because of the constraints of the human body and the human brain. Yeah, I see all the sight and sound and taste there's a spectrum in which the consciousness lives in and like when it comes to gamma rays we're able to see stuff 
that our normal vision cannot see, it still exists. It's still affecting and doing its work. And that's kind of what I'm hearing you say. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and not just that, but there's this lends itself to neurodiversity, which is such a big part of yeah. my passion now and my mission. And there's people that are considered tasters, super tasters, the palate of their taste buds and how they f- experience food mm-hmm. and taste is dialed up yep. to a level of sensitivity that the majority of people don't have. And so they taste notes that we don't taste. Mm-hmm. They'll smell tea and they'll be able to articulate what kind of ingredients are in, whereas we might not yeah. notice at all. We might say, well, that's just spicy. Yeah, and they'll say, like, there's some black pepper in there and there's some yeah. cloves and there's some this and that. And that sensitivity can also be refined. Yeah. So there's like the natural sensitivity, mm-hmm. and then there's training in sensitivity. Yeah. And so to me, this sets up a whole host of complex interactions around neurodiversity and spiritual unfolding, mm-hmm. where in our meditation practice, we're training in a type of sensitivity mm. in some ways. Not everyone's yeah. doing that, but a lot of us are naturally. Yeah. And yet, there is a kind of starting point, naturally. There's also experiences that we have related to trauma, related Mm. to life experiences that can create a greater level of sensitivity to experience. So this is all there. And then, of (laughs) course, there's... There's people that see colors more vividly. Maybe they might mm-hmm. they might naturally become painters or artists. And there's people that hear music more exquisitely. And they might be people like these brilliant geniuses. Like who's the is it Beethoven that was so young and creating these? If I'm butchering that, my apologies <laughs> for, for any classical music yeah. uh, savants, you know. But my point is, I see bipolar. To, to circle back to this definition, mm-hmm. I see bipolar as a natural neurological sensitivity mm. that is global, not yeah. just in the brain. Yeah. A natural neurological sensitivity and a greater range of emotional sensitivity, which can be something quite beautiful because empathy is part of this great play between neurology and emotionality yeah i'm kind of curious when there's bipolar episodes or moments of it flaring up it seems as though when the brain's normally functioning we're using like 10 percent. you know it you can have little graphs and it's like this is spawning red over there your neurotransmitters are working hard over there it makes me wonder, like, you're probably using a lot more of your brain you normally don't use. Yeah, 100%. And something that I really appreciate about what you said is flare-up. I think that's such a beautiful way of talking about it. Because that's we can relate to flare-ups like autoimmune. We can relate to chronic pain. We can relate yeah. to gastrointestinal discomfort as a flare-up, asthmatic mm. issues as a flare-up. I mean, that's such a great way of thinking about it and it's very accurate to my experience cool when it comes to the brain activity so there are really beautiful images of people that are 
experiencing the symptomology of depression show in contrast to the brain images of people that are experiencing mania that many more regions are lighting up at a greater degree. Yeah. And then the alternate is true for depressive symptoms. Mm. So the brain activity looks quite diminished. It could be very rudimentarily thought of as turning up the wattage on a light bulb and blowing the light out. Yeah. Or having a light that's much more dim because the brain activity is stalling, you know. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about mad triangle. Mm-hmm. So there's something you got going on. It's called the mad triangle. I just kind of want to say that and just let you go cuz this sure. is your thing. So Yeah, well, I started telling somebody about the mad triangle the other day and they were like, "Dude, I need you to just slow down because <laughs> You're going so far. And yeah, give it to us, please. It's, right. It's so, it, to me, it feels so far out. So, in certain social locations, people will consider themselves as passing. Someone that's trans identified might say that they pass as male bodied or something like that. So, there's these kinds of things that I have as a bipolar person where I'm like passing mm-hmm. and and rate of speech is like that and mm-hmm. going too far out is like that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, you're going to give me this open <laughs> invitation to go mad triangle and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to really pace myself, but the basic overview and part of the reason I really like that it's a triangle, 3 is one of my f- very favorite numbers. Mm-hmm. Is that The mad triangle is an interplay between trauma, diversity, and insight. Mm. And when I say interplay, I mean that any particular location, whether it be trauma, diversity, or insight, can set someone up to have an altered experience in the other two domains. So someone that has experienced developmental trauma, for example they might have a whole host of diverse experiences throughout their lives that their peers are not having. Yeah. So that would be a a neurologically diverse or experientially diverse life. Mm -hmm. And the type of interactions that they have will enhance the trauma in that way. Enhance might not be a great word, but it would exacerbate. Yeah. You know, so someone that has perhaps some kind of trauma as a child, well, then maybe they get bullied later. No. Yeah. And so there's a kind of cycle that can start to perpetuate. And then also with the insight piece, someone like I would qualify for this to use the bullying example. I was bullied for being considered overweight as a child. Mm-hmm. And that allowed me and afforded me more insight into human nature mm. than some of my friends that didn't have that experience. Yeah. And to me, it was complicated. Some people that bullied me were also friends. And so there's a kind of complexity that I could hold as a young kid that a lot of my peers were not having that experience of. Yeah. And so to me, holding complexity is an integration of insight. Yeah. So Mm. those those are the basic three. And to just kind of like have 
a little merry-go-round aspect. Mm-hmm. One of the main gems of the trauma piece of the mad triangle to me is post-traumatic growth. So in the positive psychology movement, there has been a lot of thought around post-traumatic growth, which is basically to say that if you've had traumatic experiences, if you've had challenges, if you've had heartache, if you've had grief, yeah. that going through those experiences can create a positive psychological effect mm. in that you might be more caring for others. You might have yeah. more of an experience of preciousness and poignancy in your day-to-day life. You might treasure mm. your relationships more. You might feel a greater sense of purpose and meaning that you would not have had yeah. had you not gone through those yeah. experiences. It almost, I'm going to like make something up right here. Neuroplasticity through emotion because of the subjections that you are being faced with. I also feel like it does depend on the characteristics that you hold and how you filter that and digest it because it can go in different directions. But being potent and being present with those things could ultimately inform how the rest of your life is being lived. That's absolutely right. And what I need to be very clear about for this conversation and for the recording in the audience is it's not to say that trauma is that growth is inherent to trauma totally yes and that's so important because it's like we don't want to be going out looking for trauma and we also don't want to be viewing people and receiving people that have had traumatic experiences yeah as if they should somehow be sages saints yeah these great bodhisattvas just Mm -hmm. because they've gone through challenges that's not the case yeah it's just that a greater growth potential is there yes you know, and so I'm happy to say and admit that some of my very favorite people have gone through enormous hardship, mm. that there's a texture and a quality and a kind of resonant, boundless heart that mm. comes through getting to the other side of adversity Yeah, that is just quite frankly not there in someone that hasn't experienced it. Yeah. For me, and that shows a kind of chasm that has been crossed, and people are better for it yeah. having transformed. They're not better for it having suffered, and that's what I want to be very clear yeah. about. Yes, thank you for clarifying. Yeah. I really appreciate that. I'm going to give you my favorite gem from each of the Please three. Please yeah, so I then, love gems. So then when it comes to diversity, this the neurodiversity paradigm, and I first heard that through Nick Walker, and so I yeah, want to give Nick I really like that. a lot of credit. But the neurodiversity paradigm is basically acknowledging in a very simple way, which we already have, that we all have variety of neurological experiences. Mm-hmm. And just like a fingerprint is unique, just like a face is unique, just like a personality is unique. Yeah. We all are these unique expressions mm. of the infinite variety of life's great bounty. Mm. And Jesus. neurological diversity yeah. has to be a part of that yes. because our nervous system is how we do everything. It's mm. the very fabric that yeah. weaves us together as human beings. It's the whole reason we can hear each other's voices, feel mm. each other's pain, 
cry at beautiful art. I mean, everything we experience is a neurological experience. And so that presents an opportunity to say that there are certain neurological dispositions that are marginalized or oppressed in our society. Mm. And bipolar is one of them. The neurodiversity paradigm came out of an autistic declaration, proclamation that we are not broken to be fixed. Yes. That we are real human beings. And just because our experiences and our behaviors are different than the typical human experience does not make them any less valuable. Yeah, neurologically marginalized. Yes. Wow. So we're running out of time, and I just want to ask you one more question. You just got so much in you, and I love it. Sure. When you have a friend, a family member, someone you know, workplace, and they have maybe symptoms and or are associating themselves with bipolar, how does one hold space? How does one show up? How can one be present with such things? It's a great question, and it, it lends itself directly to something I call consciousness humility, which nice. is we're very familiar, at least us Naropa people, right? Us Naropa folk are familiar mm-hmm. with cultural competency yeah, and cultural humility. Mm-hmm. And if we're talking about neurodiversity as an aspect of diversity in its whole expression, then consciousness humility is saying that I can have hints and glimpses and insight into your experience, but I will never know what it's like to be David. Yes. You will never know what it's like to be me. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of grace that automatically flourishes in the space of humility where someone is safe enough in the space of humility to say, you know what, I am struggling. Yes. And I do need help. Yeah. That's the violence and aggression that happens in these discussions Mm -hmm. is we're trying to convince someone to see their impotence or their deficiency. And actually, if we say, here's my heart, it's open to you and you're invited to come in. And then they want to step freely into that because we all need support. Definitely. We all need support. Mm -hmm. And so consciousness humility too is saying like, I'm imperfect. And I suffer. Yes. And the suffering in me acknowledges and honors the suffering in you. Yes. Along with the beauty. Mm. Yeah. And that's the diversity of seeing the light in you as well. Oh, wow. I feel like we can just keep talking about this and our time is up. But how can people find more information about you? How can they find you? if people are interested in the work you're doing, because you are doing so many great things, and I just want to showcase that. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a, such a pleasure. And my website's wakingupbipolar.com. That's also the name of my podcast, Waking Up Bipolar with Chris Cole. And I also coach people, and I'm sure there will be much more unfolding over time. So I'd love to connect with folks that resonate with the message. Yes, thank you so much for just dropping your knowledge on us and just showcasing what you know, what you've been through, and where people can just find more information. I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. 
So today I'd just like to thank Chris Cole to the podcast. Chris is a graduate of Naropa University, and I would just love to just say thank you again. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.